Amen. Hey, Mike Tyson, in his like heyday, in his prime, um, he would come out in the first round and he would hit people so hard until everything they trained for for the last six months would just go out the window. Um, who remembers Mike Tyson in his heyday? Who, who okay. It, it was just amazing. Like he would, he, you know, people would, you know, talk a good game. They would show their, you know, um, highlights of their training sessions with their sparring partner, hitting the punching bag perfectly. And then all of a sudden they get in that ring that first round and Mike Tyson would give one left hook. And even if they didn't fall, it was over. You knew it was over because they would just start wobbling and, and, and then they, they would start swinging. But none of the swings that, I, you know, that, you, that you was, they would be swinging would really have any like, major effect on him because it was over. So all their training habits, all the things that they worked on, and it was just gone in the moment. He, he would hit them that hard. You know, God threw a punch at Satan, and he crushed his head. Did you know that all the punches that the enemy is throwing now are chaotic response to his defeat? He knows that he's lost. The battle is over. Jesus' death was the blow Satan could not return from. This is why we need to recognize the fight has already been won. Victory is mine. Right, Curtis? Victory is mine. I told say. Right? I'm not a singer, but I sing that to myself. Linda's heard me sing that song. In moments of, of just wanting to remind myself of the power and strength of God in the midst of whatever I'm going through. Because what happens is, is that in, in the midst of our everyday lives, these chaotic punches that Satan is throwing at us, right? They distract us from the reality that our God has saved us through Jesus Christ and the victory has been won. Go ahead and turn to First um, Peter 3.18 if you haven't already. Peter is writing to a group of believers that are facing persecution. They're suffering possible physical, emotional, or financial, mainly because of their faith in Christ. His biggest encouragement through the letter is that Christ also suffered. 1 Peter 2, 21 says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2, 23 says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 4, 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. How do you encourage people who are suffering? Remind them that this is a part of the plan. Remind them that the one that you are following, the one that that has taken the lead, your Savior also suffered. Y'all may, not, y'all may think, man, that's not, super, that's not good encouragement. This is what the people needed. They needed to believe 
that this sinful, broken world was not it. They needed to believe that their frail bodies, their pain, their suffering, the deaths of their loved one, they, had, they needed to realize in those moments that there's a greater, there's a greater hope for future, that heaven was their destiny, that they were aliens and strangers of this earth, and that they could hope and they can be, they can be sure of the certainty that they will be with God forever one day. He explains to them how they shouldn't continue in, uh, they should continue in holy and righteous living while others mistreat them because they no longer serve themselves, but God who has called them to holiness and righteousness, even in the face of suffering. See, the goal from what we read in 1 Peter, the goal is not to avoid a society that doesn't treat them right. That's not our goal. but in the midst of a society that does not treat them right to live godly lives. That's where we are. That's how we as Christians should be living. It says, abstain from sinful desires, First um, Peter 2.11 says, which wage war against your soul. It says, submit yourselves, to, submit yourselves to the government for the Lord's sakes, meaning follow the laws, they give as long as they don't contradict God's law. We saw Jesus in one moment, you know, trying, they, the, uh, the religious leaders were, are trying to trick them. And he said, no, I'm paying my taxes. It's the law. But in the next moment, you know, on the Sabbath, you wasn't supposed to do any work. And he healed a leper on the Sabbath. So you see in one moment, he he, he's obeying the laws uh, of the government. And then in the next moment, he sees something that contradicts God's law completely. And he, he, he stands in disobedience to the law because of it. Or even in, in, in Daniel. Daniel was a, uh, in the Old Testament, we see Daniel as a great servant of the king. Smart. They, they, they respected him. But in the moment of where the law contradicted God's law, you saw Daniel be persecuted. You see him getting thrown to the lion's den because he decided to pray even after they, they told him not to pray. He decided to, not to worship the emperor or the, the king in that moment. So we have been called as believers in the midst of a cruel society, a society that doesn't doesn't you know uh, align with the way we think and believe and live? He's saying, in in the midst of that society, live godly lives, live holy, righteous lives. As an employee under ungodly boss, submit to him or her, not because he is good a boss, not because you believe that your good your good living is going to somehow make him a good boss. No, that's that that's not. That's not your main hope. Your main hope is that you would represent Christ to your boss. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessings because this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. See, our, our, our reward 
It's not always on this side of heaven. Our blessing is, is a hope that maybe an unbeliever will never understand. And remember, the unbeliever may even ask. I think that was the last message in First Peter. It was like, tell me the reason for your hope that you have. Are you prepared to give a reason? And this, that, that statement is said in response to a, a lot of suffering. It's like this, he continues in holiness and righteousness. He, he continues to proclaim Christ even though I just took his son from him. I just took his daughter. I just took his wife from him. He still worships. Tell me a reason for the hope that you continue to have even though you're suffering. Don't do evil. Do good. Continue to do good. You are not to lower your godly standards because of evil people. Be godly and loving, holy, respectful, kind, because you serve God, not people's attitudes and behaviors. Do you realize that what's going on is that when we respond in ungodliness because of somebody else, we're actually serving them. They're actually leading our behavior. They're actually controlling it. Instead of us submitting and surrendering to the word of God and how he's called us to live, how God has called us to live. Obedience to God is the blessing that we're looking for. Look no further than what he offers you as you follow him in holy living. Loving your enemy is better than retaliating. Trusting, trust God that he knows what he's talking about. Not satisfying the cravings of your sinful uh, nature is better than satisfying them in an ungodly behavior. It is better. God is better. This is, this is Peter's encouragement to a people who's suffering. He's calling them to holiness. He's calling them to righteousness. He's not calling them out of suffering. He's not calling them to a, a point where, hey, I'm coming to, to, to save the day, guys. Here I come. He's calling them to say, hey, Christ also suffered. Actually, this is your calling. This is what you've been called to, to represent Christ. And we see, we see if, if you know the story of Stephen, he thought it was a he thought it was an honor and a privilege to suffer for Christ, the first martyr. There's historical um, stories of Peter um, uh, calling it an honor. It was an honor for him to suffer as his Savior did. Now, verse 17. Let's read verse 17. It's not on the screen. Sorry about that. Uh, but it gives us a little bit of context to this passage. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. 
in it, a few, that is, eight people were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God when angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Y'all already got questions, right? Y'all feel that? Yeah. This was a tough one. If I press the... Oh, I got it. Thank you. It says, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The believers here is writing to, um, he sees, the, he, he, he needs them to see, the, see that Christ also suffered. This is not a weird thing. The encouragement is that Christ, he, he suffered as one who had not sinned for the one who had sinned. Jesus had no sin nature. He grew up without bad intentions and evil motives. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? I still think he swung and missed at the plate at a baseball game. I, I don't think he bowled a strike every time. So that's not what I'm talking about when, he, when I say he had no sin nature. He was perfect. No. He, he guttered sometimes when he bowled. He, every job interview that he went to, he didn't ace it. It wasn't perfect. No. His heart and his motives towards knowing God and worshiping him was absolutely perfect. He had no sin nature. His, when, when he cried as a baby, it was pure and genuine. I'm hungry. When he cried as a baby in pain or in sadness, it was genuine. It was pure. No sin nature. But what did the one who had no sin nature do. He died for me who walked in selfishness, walked in ungodly living. He who knew no sin died for the one who had sin. The righteous Jesus for us, the unrighteous. Mm. Why did he do it? Out of love for his created beings. He sent Jesus to bring us close. He sent Jesus to suffer and die for our sins. Sins we deserved to die for, he died for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, to bring you to God. You see that? That he might bring you to God. You were once far. You were once far, alienated, strangers. But in Jesus, he brings you close. This is a, this is a, a, a God that wants you close. This is a God that, that, that sent his most precious and prized possession, his one and only son, to bring you 
clothes. For all that would surrender to him, for everyone that would call upon his name as Lord and Savior, he says, come. The Bible says that if you draw near to me, I will draw near unto you. The one, he has, he has started it by bringing you to God, the ungodly. He was put to death. Next part of verse 18 says, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. His body, the sacrificial lamb, bulls and, and goats were offered for people year after year in the Old Testament. This is a foreshadowing of the lamb that will be slain. The lamb that was slain once for all. These, 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 these bulls and goats were, that, that were, were killed for the, the sins of the people, this was, this was thousands and thousands of bulls and goats and sheep that were slaughtered for sin. Jesus died, says, once for all. Once for all. Hebrews 10, 1 through 10, it says the law, listen to this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality of them, themselves. For this reason, it can never, sorry, for this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for the sins. But those sacrifices and annual reminder of sins, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to, to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offering, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I come to, to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. He, he, he sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Amen. But made alive in the spirit. It's capitalized there. And this is the part that I would say is, is there's some uncertainty around what he meant. Was this the Holy Spirit? Was this... The Holy Spirit, when he got baptized, and the Holy Spirit came uh, on him. When he, when he was um, proclaiming from the book of Isaiah, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he, he, proclaimed, he, he proclaimed the prophecy that was in Isaiah. Or is this, on the cross, today, I commit my spirit to you. 
Was this, was this the Holy Spirit or was this uh, the Spirit of, of Jesus? His, he, he was dead in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. NIV uh, kind of translates it for us, or, he, or they assume for us. They are actually the only translation of, of the four that I was looking at translates it for us. He says, uh, it, it says, sorry, verse 19. He says, after being made alive. So he's saying that the Holy Spirit came up before, uh, upon him. The rest of CSB and ESV and KJV says, it just goes straight. It doesn't assume. It says, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong verse. Verse 18, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And then in verse 19, we see the NIV just saying, yes, this is the Holy Spirit. Which one is it? Honestly, I'm uncertain. But what I think he wants us to see is that the next part in verse 19, we say, in which he also went and made proclamations to the spirits in prison. So this time period could be from the, the, the moment of his death to his resurrection. So in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. That's another one. Prison. Is this hell? Some com most commentators will say, no, this is not hell. Because this word that is used here in the Greek, it's never been used for hell. Never. In all of this text, in all of this text, he's never used this word prison to describe hell. And some commentators would say, it is. It is hell, but, but, but what is he making proclamation? Is he sharing the gospel? Is he, is he telling them uh, about who he is? Is he proclaiming again to evangelize to them? Now this, I'm certain about. This is not a second chance. This goes against Orthodox Christianity. This goes against our scriptures. Is appointed once for man to die and then face judgment. This proclamation is a proclamation of victory. This is a proclamation of, of, of what he has done by crushing the head of Satan. This is a long-awaited moment. When he said it was finished, it was finished. When he said it was finished, he went and proclaimed to the angels who were disobedient in Noah's days, verse 20 says. Who are these people? Those, if y'all know the story of, of Noah, you probably... You know, if you have kids or you've probably read this to your kids, the story of Noah. Guys, the real story of Noah is not a bedtime story. This is one of the most tragic scenes in all of history. First of all, the disobedience that was so rampant in this time. The disobedience to, to Noah in, in 2 Peter, it talks about Noah for over a hundred years proclaiming, proclaiming, yelling out to them to repent, 
to, to not walk in disobedience to God. And it, and it goes on. I may be getting ahead of myself. Only eight people in under a hundred or, or a little, or almost a hundred years of proclaiming, of sharing, to ask, calling for repentance, calling for them to be saved. Well, where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? Who were the spirits in prison? These spirits in prison um, could have been the, the, the sons of God, the angels, who, who saw and in disobedience, in a desire to, to crave or uh, to uh, satisfy their own lustful desires, married the daughters of men. So real men, real people. Some of y'all are like, what? That's in the Bible? Guys, if this is surprising to you and, and, and for me, it's because we live so much in this physical world where we think this is the, this is the biggest reality right in front of us. What we see, what we feel, what we touch, what we hear, we think that is the most real reality. But if you read scripture, you'll see that the greatest reality is that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There are powers, there's demonic things that, that we have never experienced. Or we have experienced them and don't realize, or we just think, oh, that person's just being mean to me. Guys, it was in my most, it, it, was, the, it was the hardest time in my life. But it was the most eye-opening time in my life last year, or, or two years ago. I, for the first time, experienced what the psalmists say, an enemy, a physical enemy. What do we usually do? I've even talked about this. Oh, yeah, when, you know, when, when, when David talks about enemies, what we can just say, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a uh, yeah, it's our, it's a spiritual thing. And, but I saw what I experienced as a, a, a person who wanted, maybe not my life, to take my life, but wanted to hurt me. I've never experienced that before. I know that's, uh, you know, I know some of you have experienced, but I've never experienced that until two years ago. And I'm like, this guy hates my guts. And I've done nothing to him. And the only thing that I could, 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 could relate it to is what I was reading in the Psalms with David, where this man is so... Uh, engulfed by a demon or, or something that is using him to attack me. It was, the, it was, the, it was one of the first times that I was like, oh, wow, this spiritual realm is real. <laughs> There's no way this guy can hate me this much without something spiritual happening to him. This is beyond physical. This is what was going on in the days of Noah when he decided to flood the earth, to flood the earth. Genesis 6, 1 and 8 says, when the human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. 
Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortals. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at the time. <laughs> the Lord regretted that he had made, had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and all. This story is not a bedtime story. We have angels, demonic angels, procreating with men uh, and women. We have a flood, a massive flood that killed all in the world except eight people. Can you imagine the carnage? This was an awful scene, not just because of the death, but because of the amount of evil dysfunctioning in the world. These people were disobedient. And we want to talk about God's patience. Verse 20, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently, I don't think it was 120 years, I don't think of what that meant, but calculations say it was, it was a little less than 100 years that he preached to repent. Waited, patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Eight people. If y'all got questions about those few verses, email Canaan. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm messing with y'all. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, verse 21. Verse 21. And, and, it, and there's a connection that we got to remember with verse 20 about the flood. It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. I'm going to just stop there. It sounds like, that doesn't, that sounds like, um, that sounds false, right? Baptism saves you? The author, Peter, he sees no he sees no disconnection between faith in God and baptism. It's one and the same to him. Being baptized is an acknowledgement of faith in Christ. It's not the water. It says not as more uh, removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a good conscience. A pledge to God that I am a sinner and I need a savior. That's what baptism is. Can someone be baptized and not be saved? They can go through the ceremony. They can, yes, with the uh, assistance of a pastor. Yeah, yeah, we, they can do that. But baptism that he's talking about, which corresponds to this, now saves you. This baptism is not disconnected from faith in Jesus. 
There's no baptism that is separate from faith in Jesus. It says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. At least his readers mistakenly attribute a magical or, or, or a mechanical power to this sacrament. No. This is something that we, that we respond to because of our faith. We walk in obedience to him, and we, we're baptized because of our faith in him. This is not as a removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The startling statement that baptism saves you shows the closeness of the relationship between the sign and the reality it signifies. That was a quote, sorry. That was a quote from a commentary. Um, Romans 6, 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's Romans 6, 4. Verse 22, last verse. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. In all the uncertainty of this passage, guys, where did he go? Where was the prison? Who was in prison? Who was he preaching to? Was it the Holy Spirit or was it his spirit? What's certain about this passage is that he is victorious. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. In view when we look at this passage, when we look at what, what Peter is writing to the people, he's saying, he's saying, walk around with a smile. Maybe, maybe not a, a huge, um, un, um, uh, unsincere smile, but a smile to say that in every situation, I am more than a conqueror because of Christ. Because he's seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers that are subject to him, to what he says and what he does. So that's how we should live. This is how we should live. We should live as victorious believers in any and all situations. He's writing to a people who are suffering. He's writing to a people who are not getting everything they they are hoping and praying for. He's writing to those people. He's saying, continue to walk in holiness, continue to walk in uh, righteousness, because the one who sits on the throne loves you. He loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die in your place. Let's pray. God, thank you that it's you that's seated on the throne. (laughs) Thank you that you have defeated sin and death on the cross. You have given us such a confidence in this text that we are not to fear any demon, any fallen angel, any man, because you sit 
enthroned. You sit as, as the one who rules and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords, and you say, call you father. We come. We come and see we surrender all to you, king of kings. We come as your servants wanting to walk in obedience to you. We need strength in the midst of our suffering. We need, we need endurance, God. We need you to provide us endurance by the power of your spirit to continue to walk in holiness and righteousness. What you have called us to do, we need your strength to do it because it's not easy. God, the faithfulness that you show us, God, we need your strength. We need your continued presence to help us to walk in this faithfulness. God, help us to be faithful, continuous proclaimers of your victory. Help us not to to shy away, to even go wherever we need to go to proclaim victory. Proclaim that there is victory when Jesus died. He crushed the head of Satan. And resurrection that is, that is communicated here shows victory. It's just like our baptism. We were saved. We were saved by putting our faith, by getting into the boat that's how we were saved. We were getting into, we were submitted ourselves. Get, we gave our life to Jesus Christ, saying that we couldn't do it ourselves. We couldn't satisfy the sins, our own sins. We put our faith completely in you, God. Oh, God, help us. If we, if we haven't done that today, God, would you help us to do surrender that right now? Surrender our lives completely. To you and you alone. God, help us to walk out of this place believing that you, you are victorious. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.